I'm recording, baby. How have you been, Derek? Oh, excellent. How are you? That doesn't... Uh, excellent <laughs> does not sound like someone who's <laughs> mentally stable. Uh, listen, my mental stability and my quality of life are two completely separate... I'd say they're related. This is Unreliable Sources, a Wikipedia show with Eric and Derek, where Derek and I discuss the funniest, weirdest, and most interesting Wikipedia entries we can find, hopefully for your education and enjoyment. Warning, information shared may be unreliable after filtering through our brains. Side effects of listening to unreliable sources may include, but are not limited to, taking two months off, excessive manliness, calling cereal soup, falling for nasty tape, and witnessing elder horrors from the beginning of time. Thanks. <laughs> you know, okay, uh, it's been a... <laughs> A, a hectic time, but I am living life and doing things. I love doing things. Them. Especially when yeah. I enjoy them. Same. <sighs> I'm very, very excited to try live transmission milkshake IPA from a berry-based, from where you are, berry-based brewing company. They shipped it all the way out here, and... So, uh, to, to Nova Scotia. And so I'm going to try it. I'm going to crack it open right now. Ready? Per your request, I am also drinking live transmission. I think it's an unwrapped can I got from work. So, uh, I'm pretty sure I remember it being live transmission, but I'll find out when I taste it. I'm going to pour. You can't really hear it because I'm pouring really nicely. No boil pints for this episode? No. Oh, if you saw it, you'd be like, ooh, Derek. Well, if it's anything like mine, I would be saying, ooh, Derek, damn. Yep, that's live team. Um, I'm using a mason jar, so I do have a bit of a head on it, but it's not boil pint by any means. It's just a nice, maybe inch and a half of really thick foam. I love a nice thick head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right, well, here's my first taste. Are you doing it live for the taste buds? The first taste is just for you. Aw, thanks, babe. So I'd like to say (laughs) thank you to our loyal listeners uh, for waiting. We're back from our winter hiatus. Thank you for bearing with us. Yeah, the one that we never mentioned, I don't think. (laughs) No, I don't think we did, but (laughs) um, it was much longer than expected because I had to move houses in late December into mid-January. And then after we finished that, there was no Wi-Fi for about six weeks on top of other fuck-ups. And then by the time I got Wi-Fi, Derek was in Hell Week for the show he was doing. Yeah, so uh, it's been uh, unlucky. We were like, oh yeah, we're just going to like record in, in January, so we'll get ahead of it. And uh, it's February 21st today, so... <laughs> Yes, uh, so it's February 21st, 2021. We did it, folks. We made it through the year of hell. 2020 can eat a bag of moldy potatoes. Add in the amount of time it's going to take me to edit this down to an actual listenable format. And I apologize for the one decade long wait that there will be between episode 6 and episode 7. But I swear it'll be worth the wait. And this episode is going to be awesome. March sometime, I guess. I have no idea. So we'll see. Just I don't know. <laughs> giving the folks an, a bit of an update. In the amount of time it took us to record episode seven, I both applied for and got accepted into Teachers College. So that's fun. And because of that, I'd like to be on record saying I, I take back already. what I said in episode one. This show is definitely for teachers. 
we uphold only the highest standard of scholarly integrity here on Unreliable Sources. It's definitely a show for teachers and yeah, history. kind of. No, no, no. Remember, I, I mean, I think we said it wasn't for teachers, but we only said it was for teachers who who disprove of using Wikipedia as a source. No, no, no. It's, it's good for all teachers, Derek. I don't want to be audited, Derek. <laughs> okay. So before we actually get into it, I, I have to ask you something. Have you ever started up on a topic... And then decided, actually, this isn't very interesting, and then given up on it? No, but I have started up on a topic and then found something completely different that I was like, wait, this is way better. It happened when I did uh, the haiku episode. Yes, yes, I do recall. I was going to do a completely different topic. I don't even remember what it was, but then I was like, whoa, I want to read all about poetry now, because I like poetry. So that was me this episode, though, with the Statue of Liberty. I, I, I don't know why I was on the on the page and I saw something interesting. I was like, oh, I'll do that for this episode. And then like, it's an interesting topic, I suppose. But uh, beyond the, the initial thing that I saw, uh, which was that the the framework of the Eiffel Tower was built by Gustav Eiffel, the same guy the tower is named after, uh, the Eiffel Tower. And I thought that was interesting and then quickly lost interest in the rest of the page. Maybe I'll go back to it later, but. So that's not one of your topics no. this week? I just figured okay. the folks deserve to know. That's fair. Um, yeah, and uh, aren't I going first this week? If you want to follow our pattern, I, I think you should. I always say week, but, you know, anyway. <laughs> um, today I was, just after I was doing my auditions, I had a little chat with my co-collaborators for that. And actually, both of my topics came from that chat. So you did all of your research today. Today. Yes, because I just, I liked the pages a lot. I had other topics. In fact, I still have the pages open. Well, you can save those for later then. I will. I'll save them for next episode. But my first topic today is quite special. It's a very short page and I am just going to read the entire thing because if I'm being honest, I don't think I could summarize this meaning. All right, hit me with it. It's a page about a Finnish soldier from World War II. His name's, I'm going to butcher this, but it's Amo Koivunen. Okay. I think. Amo Allen Koivunen, born 17th of October 1917, was a Finnish soldier in World War II. And the first documented case of a soldier overdosing on methamphetamine during combat. Oh, okay. It's that kind of soldier. <laughs> yeah, okay, wait, wait. I'm... He, it, this page has one paragraph. It's called Military Escapades. Or, it's not a paragraph. One section. It's called Military Escapades. Alrighty, I'm excited. Okay, he served from 1939 to 1944. He was a corporal, and it was World War II, obviously. Just a little to get this out of the way. And I'll, I'll send you a picture, in fact, because uh, you got to see the look on him. Please face. do. Uh, sorry for the audience members. You can look up this page and see it. It's on the Wikipedia page, but just for you, uh, Eric. Oh, what are you sending it to? The Discord to... chat? Yeah, yeah. I think I'm just going to send it in general. Yeah, it works. You. He looks like he's seen some Other shit. People missed... <laughs> I know, that's, like that's exactly what He looks all put together, and then in his eyes, said. it's just the thousand yeah, mile those are the... stare. Now, okay, listen, listen to this paragraph, and then look up the picture of him. If you're listening at home, because you'll see that his eyes reflect this story. So Koivinen 
was a Finnish soldier assigned to a ski patrol on the 20th of April, 1944, along with several other Finnish soldiers. Three days into their mission on March 18th, the group was attacked and surrounded by Soviet forces, from which they managed to escape. Koivinen became fatigued after skiing for a long distance, but could not stop, obviously because of the Russians, and he was also the sole carrier of the army-issued Pervitin, or methamphetamine. It's a name brand, methamphetamine. A stimulant you, that they used to remain awake while on duty. And Koivinen had trouble pulling out a single pill because he was skiing, and I, I assume when they say skiing, they mean cross-country skiing. This would be a lot um, cooler, though, if it was a downhill mountain chase. <laughs> I know, right? But still. Uh, he had trouble pulling out a single pill, so he emptied the entire bottle of 30 capsules into his hand and took them all. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you ever been like that? Like, ah, oh, I just can't get a single pill out, so I guess I'll take them all. I can't say I have. Uh, however, I suppose it's similar to when you're at the bottom of the can of Pringles. <laughs> well, what happened to him? Okay. So he had a short burst of energy and then entered into a state of delirium and lost consciousness. Koivinen remembered waking up the following morning separated from his patrol and having no supplies. In the following days, he escaped Soviet forces once again, was injured by a landmine, and laid in a ditch for a week waiting for help. Damn. Dude's a survivor. Then, I know, okay, wait. Then, after skiing more than 400 kilometers, he, he, was, he was like half, he was blown up by a landmine, okay? And then he skied 400 kilometers. Like you do. And he was he was found and admitted to a nearby hospital, where his heart rate was measured at 200 beats per minute. Still? Which is triple, which, yeah. He took this meth over, like over a week ago. I know. He took 30, 30 times what he was supposed to. I don't know how much meth is the recommended <laughs> dose, Derek. I'll admit that on on live on our podcast. Uh, um, so this, the Wikipedia notes that 200 beats per minute is triple the average human heartbeat. I also remember from grade nine health class that supposedly your maximum heart rate is 220 minus your age. And so in 1944, uh, he would have been 27. So that would make, or 26 actually, because it wasn't his birthday yet, uh, which means that his maximum heart rate, if he was reaching like peak efficiency, well, it would be like 194 beats per minute. So it was going 200, and that's triple the average human heart heartbeat. It might uh, be triple the average human heartbeat, but it's only half of my heartbeat when I see your eyes. Oh, so sweet. Wink. Um... <laughs> He also only weighed 43 kilograms, which is 94 pounds. And in the week that Koivinen was gone, he subsisted only on pine buds and a single Siberian jay that he caught and ate raw. I swear to God, I thought you were going to say Siberian tiger. <laughs> no. Yeah, goddamn. He caught and ate a, a raw tiger. Uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, so he ended up surviving and died peacefully at the age of 71. <laughs> In 1989. Was he still high? 
<laughs> I hope not. I mean... <laughs> Jesus. He wanted he wanted he wanted the energy to ski for one trip and instead he got the energy to to live for 30 more years. Jesus. <laughs> I'm not entirely certain if taking all that meth actually helped at all? Like helped or made it worse. <laughs> Cuz it seems like it made it worse, but that he but based on just the pure ridiculousness of this story, it might have helped. I don't I don't know if he would have like lived through all of that if he was not high on meth the whole time. So like it caught the, the meth caused the problem but also solved the problem. See, I my, I have got a working theory here. And it's that he took so much meth that he started blinking in and out of the space-time continuum. So when it uh, well, people think he was lying in a ditch for a week, he actually laid down in the ditch, blinked out and reappeared a week later, but to him it was just an instant. <laughs> I, I like that theory. I like that theory a lot. Um, yeah, so that's my quick little story about Imo Allen Koivinen. Remember to look at his, look up his picture. Because oh, you already sent it to me. It's... I did, I know, but I mean the, the audience. Oh, yes. Uh, because you can just see in his eyes, this man has seen some shit. That's, that is the look of someone who's been back to the beginning of time and can't unsee... <laughs> The eldritch horrors <laughs> that that awaited him there. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and that was my friend Elsie, my who I'm working on the film with, who shared that one with me. So thank you. <laughs> okay, that's um, pretty good. I'll pass it over to you because that that was that's my first topic for. Today. Oh, you didn't go anywhere from there. No, there's there's there are two links on this page. One's for methamphetamines. Uh, one is I'm methamphetamine. <laughs> Yeah, one was methamphetamine. Actually, sorry, I, I just noticed there's three. Ooh. World War II, methamphetamine, and Siberian J. Okay, Siberian J could have been cool, but, you know, whatever. It's a, uh, it's a bird. Kingdom Animalia, Phylum Chordata, same as the T-Rex. Uh, class Evis. Um, Phylum Chordata is same as all animals with a backbone. Fish, jaguars, me. Okay, yes. I'm just commenting because I remembered that because I I have not taken a lot of biology of modern animals, but I have taken a dinosaur course where we just talked about dinosaurs, and I know a lot of the classifications of them. And I just remember that Cordata is from that. That we, but uh... anyway, yes. Anyway, family Corvidae and genus Parasaurus and species Parasaurus infaustus. Faustus. In Faustus, yeah. Ah, oh, dang. So not Faustus. If we're following the... Probably for the best. <laughs> I know. All right, so it's my turn then? Oh, wait, I just wanted to say before we do, because you seem particularly interested. The Siberian jay eats and uh, breeds. They are strictly monogamous. That's what the page says. Uh, they have small flocks. They don't like hawks. And they like nice And they're nice not as socks. cool as Fox. I'm glad we both went for the third rhyme there. So that's that's a little bit about this bird that I didn't actually do any research on, but thought that oh, and it's of and it's a uh, conservation status is least concern. Good, I like to hear that. Yeah. So that is five seconds about this bird. Anyway, 
I'll pass it off to you now. Tell All right, me what's so your first topic. I ended up starting off my research like any good day, really, with breakfast. Okay. So to get the basics out of the way, breakfast is the first meal of the day, usually eaten in the morning, and is named such because you are breaking your nighttime fast. Now, what's considered breakfast foods varies depending on when and where you are. Now, the when might not matter to most folks, but considering you're from the future, I assume you ma- it, the when matters to you. Yes, of course. I really care. And apparently the when matters to our <laughs> other time-traveling friends. <laughs> okay. So, in English, dinner originally referred to a breaking, uh, the breaking of a fast until about the 13th century when the meaning changed. So, uh, it was the original word for the first meal of the day, and now it's generally the last meal of the day, which is neat. Ooh, it's like the poles of Earth swapping. Yes, every 42,000 years. Yeah. The same thing happens. For every 42,000 years, the names of the meals change. Yes. <laughs> it wasn't until the 15th century, however, that the word breakfast actually came into fashion. From what I can understand, it was an update of the old English term morgenmete, which translates to morning meat, which, same, but more accurately should be thought of as morning meal. So Wikipedia also tackles the assertion that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and basically it's important, but whether it's the most important is challenged, and its effects on managing body weight are unclear. Uh, next, there was a uh, rather large section on worldwide breakfasts, and if I were to read it all, this episode would be longer than the break we just took from making the podcast, so I'm going to rattle off what I thought was interesting. Alright, so much of Africa has various grain-based meals for breakfast, and fruits and coffees tend to be common too. Of particular note, in Somalia, they pair a pancake-like bread with honey and beef jerky, which sounds good to me, and then they then wash it down with a cup of tea to complete the quartet of stuff I like. What kind of tea? Uh, tea. Fair enough. In Asia, there's a huge variety of breakfast foods. Obviously, 58% of the world's population lives there. In China, (laughs) soups have a place on the menu for breakfast, which is interesting. And this also raises the question, do you think cereal is soup? Oh, gosh. I've heard this before. Um, it's, it's, I'd say the biggest thing for me is whether cold things are soup. There are cold soups, I believe. Soup to me seems like a hot food. In like, if you could tell me a, a savory cold soup, and I that I find to be a soup, I think I would have no problem saying that cereal is a soup. I'm personally of the opinion that it's not a soup because we just need to have a cutoff line somewhere. That's fair as well. By some definitions, the ocean is a soup. I'd say by my definition, it's not because it's not hot, and hot soups soup is hot. Soup is hot. You know. Yeah. So the real interesting part in this bit, though, is on the Hong Kong breakfast. Due to it being a British colony for almost 200 years, its cuisine is a mixture of Britain and the nearby Canton region of China. So we end up with stuff like milk tea, fried eggs, noodles, and dim sum, which in itself varied enough to have further description. Quote, dim sum includes a variety of different ingredients and is prepared in numerous different forms, from delicately wrapped baby shrimp steamed dumplings to sweet water chestnut cake. Each dish is designed to be sampled and diners can go through a large selection of dim sum quickly, accompanied by a generous amount of good tea, end quote. I personally love that whoever wrote this is assuming that not only will you be having large quantities of tea with your dim sum, but it's also going to be good. I really want dim sum now. I I could go for some dim sum, too. After this, you want to go? 
Oh yeah, sure. I'll just I'll hop in the car. Okay, good. Drive out to Halifax. See you in eighteen hours. I'll start walking. Meet you halfway. Perfect. So the last interesting thing that I have to say about breakfast in Asia is that in Japan, breakfast comes in two general categories, Japanese style and Western style. Uh, Traditionally, Western style is eaten throughout the week, and Japanese style is saved for weekends and holidays. That's interesting. It's because Western style tends to be like cereal, toast, and stuff, and then Japanese style stuff that takes longer to prepare, like uh, fried rice and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I know they have tons of egg dishes there. So moving um, into Europe, Wikipedia is quick to clarify that continental Europe tends to have a much lighter breakfast than America or the UK, and that this likely stems from the fact that breakfast was disapproved of by many clerical writers of the Middle Ages on the continent. So, uh, for continental Europe, there's a lot of pastries here, as well as tea, coffee, and hot chocolate. Cereal is also common in Europe, as are open-faced sandwiches. Apparently, around 2000, Iceland was the world leader for consumption of Cocoa Puffs cereal. (laughs) Okay. And on the polar opposite end, they also have an affinity for cod liver oil in the morning. I hope they weren't putting the two together, though. That sounds, uh, gross. So the... Cod liver cereal. Continental breakfast, as it exists today, was literally developed by American hotels... Inspired by the lighter foods of European breakfasts, but specifically things that are easy to serve in bulk and have a longer shelf life, like coffee, fruits, and baked goods. Uh, This was during the period in the late 1800s when going far afield for for vacations and such was starting to become more common, so it was easier for Europeans to visit America, and then it was like, boom, hotel, continental breakfast. But they basically invented Mm -hmm. the continental breakfast Then there's the English breakfast, something that I like to make myself whenever I have all of the ingredients and nothing better to do with my morning. Eggs, bacon, sausages, mushrooms, roasted tomatoes, baked beans, toast, and black and white puddings. Mm, Delicious. Now, I have had black and white puddings, but I don't know how to make them myself, so I don't make them myself. They are really good, though. I know you're not partial to things that aren't vegan, obviously, but uh, I will say that I quite enjoy them. That's, That's fair. I mean... I like a good English breakfast, especially beans on toast. Oh, beans on toast. So the full English has become less common in England as life has gotten faster, but according to Wikipedia, there's still a traditional fare for weekends, holidays, birthdays, or following a night of drinking, which sounds even more wonderful than anything else in the world. Waking up to a nice English breakfast when you have a hangover. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds like the perfect cure. Last time I had a hangover... Uh, which was the one time after I was at your I was after your place and I I went to get tacos for breakfast actually. That From also Jay's. sounds like a good idea. Oh yes! Shout out to my boy Jay at Jay's Burrito, the best burrito in Barry. Oh, it is. It's definitely. And now to speed through North America because it's pretty common to us, but I am going to give it what details I found interesting. Canada is noteworthy for our taste for maple syrup, obviously, and things that go well with it. Namely, pancakes, waffles, French toast, bacon, sausages, Canadian bacon, or pea bacon for those non-Canadians out there. And yes, we do include all three of those meats in our list of things that go well with maple syrup. I may be vegan. But. But. That is 100% true. I mean, like, come on, maple syrup with meat. That's a combination. They're meant to go together. Oh, yeah. 
And then the section on the United States was so long that it starts with a hyperlink to a list of American breakfast foods, because of course it does. <laughs> okay. Then I moved on to uh, Oceania, where Australia has to be the weird one, yet again, with a Vegemite, which I have had, and it is gross. It's like soy sauce with the consistency of peanut butter. Ugh. Wait, really? I've never had it before. Yep. I had an Australian exchange teacher in high school, and she brought Vegemite in on her last day, and... It's gross. I mean, I like soy sauce, and uh, I'd like to try it someday, Vegemite. I, I've never tried it. Well, I recommend trying it. I just don't expect you to like it. Anyway, then South America, there was actually only sections for Argentina and Brazil, where breakfast is considered secondary to lunch, so there wasn't a lot to be said about it. Fair enough. So, from breakfast, I moved on to breakfast. But we've already had breakfast. We've had one, Yes. What about second breakfast? So, second breakfast, it's a meal eaten before lunch, but after breakfast, and is a traditional meal in Bavaria, Poland, Slovakia, Spain, and Hungary. How could I not see this coming? Like, how, why was I, for a second, surprised by this? Don't think he knows about second breakfast, Pip. What about elevensies? Luncheon, afternoon tea, dinner, supper. He knows about them, doesn't he? I wouldn't count on it. Some of the places, uh, Bavaria, Poland, Slovakia, Spain, and Hungary, some of these even have meal items that are specific to second breakfast traditionally. And it's typical to eat four or five meals a day there. Sounds like heaven to me. Now, according to Wikipedia, second breakfast is typically a lighter meal or snack eaten around 10 in the morning, and its name in Hungarian and Slovakian literally translates to snack at 10. In Bavaria... It's common to have coffee, pastries, and sausages, which are served with pretzels and wheat beer. Okay, yeah. Sounds um, like a, a good time. Yeah, it does. The meal is said to be similar in concept to the British Elevensies. Put a pin in that. And Wikipedia goes on to mention its place in literature and film. And of course, as I've already edited into the episode, it's prominently featured in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings books as one of the six meals his hobbits are quite fond of having daily. Did you just make a reference to an edit you're going to do but have not done yet? My, My goals are beyond your ability to understand, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> he knows what it's going to sound like. He, he's already planned this whole section. I'm four parallel universes ahead of you. Okay. <laughs> so now you may have seen this one coming, but like a good hobbit, I'm moving from second breakfast to elevensies. Traditionally, elevensies is a short meal taken, as its name suggests, around 11 a.m. to consume a drink or a snack. There are regional variations, but because we don't quite have the time I'd like if we were to go through the full menu of Hobbit meals in one episode, I'll merely say that it varies greatly the world over. And in the UK, where it's likely to be most similar to the Hobbit that I was born to be once, they generally have tea or coffee with biscuits. Then there's another pop culture section on this one. Uh, and Winnie the Pooh enjoys honey on bread with condensed milk for his elevensies, and Paddington Bear is also known to partake in buns and hot cocoa. And then, of course, hobbits are famous for making this one of their six daily meals. Are you really going to talk about all the meals of the Hobbit day? Yes. Okay. Keep them coming. Three down. Next, I moved on to lunch. Now, lunch, or luncheon, as its full name goes, is more complicated than the last few meals and varies dramatically in size, importance, and content, depending on where you are in the world. Etymology time. My favorite. The name luncheon comes from the old English word 
nunchen, which means noon drink. Now, originally, the noon meal and the main meal of medieval Europe was dinner, which was eaten around noon because it was easier to have a large, important meal without the need for artificial light. And as this meal started getting pushed further and further back into the evening, the gap between breakfast and dinner became too long, and lunch was born to fill it. Humorously, Wikipedia also clarifies that dinner moving to later in the day squeezed the traditional evening meal, supper, out of the common schedule. So there actually is a difference between dinner and supper. Okay. Interesting. I'm So the next this. meal in your Hobbit day is dinner. So we have breakfast, second breakfast, elevensies, luncheon, and dinner so far. Surprisingly. What about afternoon tea? Technically, that wasn't written into the books. That was, that was for the movies. Oh, really? Yes. I must be misremembering that. Uh, in the appendices for The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien says that they enjoy six meals a day when they can get it. But afternoon tea isn't really a meal so much as it's a snack. So it wouldn't be uncommon That's for fair. a hobbit to have afternoon tea as well. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, afternoon tea can be a meal. If it's like in British tradition, it can be like quite a meal. Like a lot of pastries and sandwiches and tea and biscuits. And tea. A lot of stuff. And tea. Did I mention tea? <laughs> yes, and tea. So surprisingly, the page for dinner actually has less information than the page for breakfast, but I'm still just going to skim through it for the sake of time. Traditionally, the largest meal in Western cultures, dinner comes in many different forms. While most people think of dinner as the big evening meal, globally, it can really be any meal at any time, depending on the culture. There's still some places that call breakfast dinner, lunch dinner, Dinner is only special meals like Christmas dinner, a dinner party, etc. Now, for the etymology of the word dinner, it comes from the French dîner, which means to dine, as you probably know. And then there's a whole section on dinner parties, which includes ancient Rome, which gets its own special segment to talk about how emperors and senators would congregate and discuss at these dinners. And finally, we move on to our last meal of the Hobbit day, supper. So, supper was originally a lighter evening meal back when dinner was the heavy noontime meal, though it wasn't necessarily the last meal of the day, as tea may still be had afterwards. So, nowadays, supper is still sometimes used to name a light snack after dinner, and sometimes it's used interchangeably with dinner or left out entirely. Personally, I'm a dinner kind of guy. How about you? I say dinner. Yeah. I think my roommate says supper, though. Harris. I mean, he says dinner sometimes, but, like, he also sometimes uses supper. I think that's more like a, an e a lot of people in the East Coast say supper. Harris. Wait, hold on. I'm going to ask him. Harris. <clears throat> All right, folks. I have yet again tricked Derek into leaving. I don't know how much time I'm going to have, so I'm just going to... I'm going to make the executive decision here, right here and now. Ah, that Porygon is... Oh, shit, he's coming back. Oh, no, he, okay, he's going away again. So I'm making the executive decision right now that Porygon is the official Pokemon of the podcast because it's like a digital Pokemon, like it surfs the web and stuff, just like us. And I've been playing a lot of Pokemon recently again, so that's what's on my mind right now. <laughs> Derek is currently schooling Harris with information I just taught him. <laughs> I'm proud of you, son. Here he comes. Okay. I'm I heard you schooling now. Harris there, by the way. Yeah, okay, wait. Um, I, I just defended 
the points you told me off from Wikipedia. So first of all, let me just say. Did you just say Her- Wikipedia? I did. It was an accident. Words sometimes come out weird. Don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I did ask Harris. He said supper. Um, then Harris. He, then he asked me what I called the middle meal of the day. I said lunch. He said that's wrong because lunch comes from a meaning that means midnight. So now I'm going to look this up myself. Look up lunch and see the etymology of just the word lunch because I want to double check it. And Harris was completely wrong uh, because it does indeed come from an abbreviation of the word luncheon, which comes from, well, Google says something different than what you said, but this says possibly. Uh, So it says coming from Spanish loña, which means slice into English lunch, and then which means thick piece or hunk. Wait, 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 wait. Lunch, according to this, means thick piece or hunk. Yeah. Of so are you telling meat. me that people are you telling me that people are either a snack or they're a lunch? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fuck you. Someone like you a snack, and I'm like, mm, you a lunch. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I did school, Harris. Good. Anyway, please continue now that I've asked Harris of his type, his word for the dinner meal. Which is All supper. right. So some etymology time for supper. Supper is also derived from French, this time soupe, uh, which is a term related to either the word soup or they share an origin that's been lost to history. Uh, that one's a bit more soupy. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm so And then, just to round it all off, I'm ending with a surprise seventh meal, dessert. Now, dessert technically isn't a meal. It's a concluding course to a meal typically consisting of sweet foods. But I'm talking about it anyway. Damn it. It's excellent. So dessert is typically a Western idea, as places like Africa and China have no tradition of a dessert course to end the meal. The etymology for dessert comes from the French, desservie, which means to clear the table as it was typically served after the dishes were cleared from dinner or supper, or what have you. And its first known usage in English was in 1600. And like any good meal, I'm ending with dessert. So what else did you have to say this episode? Oh, well, thank you for asking me. Um, I actually have another topic that was shown to me this afternoon by my friend Elsie. Uh, And that is, she actually took like showed us the the wikipedia pages herself um so that's where i got them but uh this is about the glasgow ice cream wars the what (laughs) um the glasgow ice cream wars okay yeah so i know what you're thinking damn that's the coolest sounding thing i've ever heard and uh i'm sorry but it it's a little bit of a disappointment That's what I got when I read this page. But there's more to come. So the Glasgow Ice Cream Wars were turf wars in Glasgow, Scotland in the 80s, where rival crime organizations would sell drugs from ice cream vans. What? Yeah. So I just want to make it clear, though. The ice cream vans, they still sold ice cream. It was a front. They sold ice cream just as a front so that they could sell drugs and stolen goods. No elaboration what the stolen goods were. 
and I was expecting something a little more ice cream related, uh, but most of the page was almost entirely about a singular most notable event from the mm-hmm. conflict. The These crime organizations were trying to like bully the ice cream van drivers into peddling drugs for them. And like where the ice cream drivers would go was like the, their turf. And they, so they, it was, it was like a turf war. That's really what this whole thing was about. And they, there was a lot of like fear mongering with the crime organizations. Like they'd threaten people and like do violent acts and like shoot shotguns at the windshields of ice cream vans as like a threat. I don't think when people were inside the vans, like it wasn't like to kill them. I mean that they just would like shatter the glass with shotguns. I hope with not. Shotguns. Just. Just to, like, scare, like, when the drivers weren't there. As a warning. Like, they just find the parked vans as, like, a warning and shoot at the windshields. Because um, they talked about that a bit. But actually, the, the one big event that most of the page talked about was an arson case where there was this one driver. Uh, his name was Andrew Doyle. He was also known as Fat Boy. Same. Um, so Andrew Doyle, he resisted. He didn't want to push the drugs. Uh, and his resistance, <laughs> he was an ice cream truck driver, and he, he resisted the pressure to sell drugs, which got him shot, but he still continued to be an ice cream truck driver. So they were like, well, damn, how are we going to scare him? And they were like, what if we just like dumped a bunch of petrol on his porch and lit it on fire? And so they did it, and then it burned down his entire house and killed him and his family. Six people in total. Well, that's unfortunate. And then what followed was an a, an over 20-year court case. So that was most of the entire page was dedicated to this court case, and it lays it out in very thorough detail. But there's a lot of controversy, and it's, it's a lot to read. Like, when I read it, it was just a lot. Um, so I'll sum it up by saying that, the two, that the, these two men, Thomas Campbell and Joe Steele, were convicted of the crime of the arson and which led to murder. Good. Um, but there was a lot of miscarriage of justice and the two were maintained their own, their innocence. And it was later found out that some of the witnesses had lied and the, the cops all had two, who testified all had too similar a story. And it was like proven by someone, by a, by a professor who studied the way people's memories work and he found out that like the cops stories were so consistent with their wording that there was no way that it was Not independent and that it was like it had to be a fakely made rehearsed story and so with all of this like miscarriage of justice and like just malpractice in the court uh, after like 20 years and like four appeals some hunger strikes and one instance of Steel super gluing himself to the railing outside Buckingham Palace. Oh, and there was also a couple prison breaks and protests. Uh, the pair had their convictions quashed and they were re- released from prison in 2001. That's bullshit. That they were released? Yeah. Didn't they? They committed the crime, right? Well, no, not necessarily. We don't know who committed the crime. They were just the people who... It was the two of them who were convicted, but 
like they maintain that they were innocent the whole time and so it doesn't like we don't really know and in fact later on i think campbell said that they should reopen the investigation this was in like 2002 after he'd already been released they said that they should restart the investigation to figure out who actually did it because like it wasn't them basically the whole time the two maintained that they did not do it and that it was actually just like the cops were blaming them because they were the, the people that they suspected but the only evidence they had on them was one witness who later admitted that he had lied about his testimony and the police stated that Campbell had made a statement saying that he only thought that they should shoot out the windows of the, of the van, uh, not light fire to Fatboy's house. And Campbell later said that he never said that to them. But, you know, then it's just his word versus theirs. There's no recording that proves it. So it's kind of up in the air. Okay, you know, okay. There's a bit more nuance than I thought. Yeah, it... The case was basically, and also the the original judge was really, really said a lot to the jury to sway them. He called them vicious and dangerous men and said that he could not accept that there was a conspiracy among the police and that at the original trial, he had instructed the jury that to believe Campbell and Steele's assertions of their innocence was to accept that not one or two or four but a large number of detectives have deliberately come here to perjure themselves to build up a false case against an accused person okay um and what i was saying before uh the professor his name is brian clifford uh he was a professor of cognitive psychology who testified that the recollection of campbell's statement by the four police officers at the time of the original trial was too exact centering on an identical 24-word phrase which featured in every account, I only wanted to the van windows shot up. The fire at Fat Boys was only meant to be a frightener which went too far. Clifford had performed studies where he tested people in Scotland and England on their ability to recall a statement that they had just heard. His results were that people only recalled between 30% and 40% of the actual words they heard, and that the highest score obtained by anyone in the experiment on a 24-word phrase was 17 words out of the 24 used. He stated that these results strongly suggested that it was not at all likely that the officers would be able to record Campbell's statement in such similar terms without having compared or collaborated on their accounts. Makes sense to me. Yeah. I don't know. It's one. It's like a toss-up. Well, that is interesting. And the guy who originally testified that the two were guilty and who I had already mentioned was, had lied, uh, he later admitted in his own, this is a quote from him, I did so because it suited my own selfish purposes. The explanation as to why I gave evidence is this. The police pressurized me to give evidence against Campbell, who they clearly believed was guilty of arranging to set fire to Doyle's house. Okay, so there's a lot of nuance here. Yeah. Anyway, to move on from all that, um, I did go to another page here, because at the top of the page, it says this. Ice Cream War redirects here. It is not to be confused with an ice cream war. Oh, no. So I clicked that. Oh, no. And an ice cream war is the name of a novel from 1982 by William Boyd, a Scottish author. So William, st we're still in Scotland then. Yeah, and we're still in the 80s. By, like, these are completely... 
like completely unrelated things. They're okay. so unrelated. Okay. But this is also in the 80s, also in Scotland. And this is a darkly comic war novel. Uh, and I also wanted to m- make a quick mention, especially because you just brought up Lord of the Rings, that this man's name is William Boyd, short form of Will, uh, of William being Will or Bill or Billy. So you could say this man's name, this man could be called Billy Boyd. I love Billy Boyd. But he's not Billy Boyd. Damn. But you could call him that. And I, I just wanted to mention that really quickly. But the the novel focuses mostly on the British-German conflict in Eastern Africa that was fought during World War One, and how it affects several individual people whose paths converge. Okay. I will briefly read the synopsis because it's not very long. Again, this is a short page. All my pages this week were quite short. The first character introduced is Temple Smith, whose name is Walter Smith in the U.S. edition, which is only one of a couple changes, including, in fact, the a letter in the book uh, includes a quote in just the British but not the American version that says, Lieutenant Colonel Storty says that the war here will last only two months. It is far too hot for sustained fighting, he says. We will all melt like ice cream in the sun. And that's where the book gets its name from. But it didn't okay. show up in the American version. So the Americans that reading that were dumb. like, man, where? what a strange name for a book. Why would you edit that out? <laughs> I don't know. It, it doesn't say. It just like says j- that it's not in the American one. So I don't know why. Uh, but let me continue with the synopsis. So his name's Walter Smith in the U.S. edition. And an American expatriate farm owner, mechanic slash engineer, who runs a successful sisal plantation, which is a type of agave in British Eastern Africa, near Mount Kilimanjaro. Before war breaks out in August 1914, Smith is on cordial terms with his German half-English neighbor, Eric von Bishop. Ooh! I like this guy. Spelled E-R-I-C-H. For your Ooh! I like that spelling, too. It's not as good as E-R-I-C, but that's the second best. Anyway, continue. Smith even shops for coffee plant seedlings at the botanical garden in the capital of German East Africa, Dar es Salaam. Major von Bishop, he's a major, Eric. Ooh, major, major von Eric. Bishop, Major Eric, burns Smith's sisal and linseed plantation in the opening campaign of the Great War and then dismantles the massive decorticator, which is a machine for stripping the skin, bark, and rinds off of wood just like a pre-processing step what a douche yeah exactly the industrial centerpiece of smith's sisal farm operations so this is like the centerpiece of his operation and this asshole burns it all down eric actually turns out to be an asshole sorry i'm gonna give him a break though because his name is eric now made a penniless refugee and unable to secure any war reparations from the colonial british bureaucracy smith places his wife and children with his missionary father-in-law and joins the British military forces in Nairobi, pursuing personal vengeance against von Bishop over the next four years of the war in East Africa. The second narrative strand involves Felix Cobb, the studious youngest son of an aristocratic and traditional British military family, every one of whom he despises apart from his older brother Gabriel, a captain. The latter soon marries his sweetheart Cherie, inspiring a certain jealousy in Felix. But war breaks out while Gabriel is on his honeymoon in Normandy, and he makes haste back to his regiment. 
Gabriel is posted to Africa, where he befriends psychotic fellow soldier Bilderbeck and is wounded in the Battle of Tanga. Whilst recovering in a prisoner-of-war hospital, he develops an infatuation for Eric von Bishop's plump, stubborn wife, Lies, who works there as a nurse. The novel could be considered a satire on the ineptitude of authority in wartime. A recurring character, District Officer Weech Browning, spreads chaos wherever he goes, such that Smith observes, and every time he goes somewhere with Weech Browning, someone in their company meets an unfortunate death. Well, that's unfortunate. Yes. However, that is not the end. That is just the end of the synopsis. But what I last went to was the page for William Boyd, because I did want to confirm that he was did not happen to also be Billy Boyd. Because, come on, like, I just had to make sure, because I didn't, I didn't want to go in here and be like, Billy Boyd. He is not. Billy he is Boyd. not Billy Boyd, the actor. Is he in any way related to Billy Boyd? I could not find out, but I did look it up and no information. So maybe they're related, but I don't have any proof. But anyway, I was just skimming his page. I didn't really take down notes. I haven't heard of any of the books that he wrote, of which there are like 15 or so. Uh, He wrote a couple of short stories and three plays. However, what I did note is one very interesting case, one book he wrote, called Nat Tate, an American Artist, 1928 to 1960. Okay. It's a novel slash biography for Nat Tate, who is an American artist. Really? And it documented his artwork and life. Do you know him? No, but the title is Nat Tate, an American Artist, so I figured... <sighs> okay, fair enough. Nat Tate was an American and an artist. Yeah, that makes sense. You'd think that. And in fact, a lot of people did. But I was just testing you because I wanted to see what you'd say when I asked you if you heard of the name. Because actually, this was a huge hoax because Nat Tate was not a real person. It was a fictional biography which presents the paintings of this 1950s New York-based abstract expressionist named Nat Tate. And the book was launched with a lavish party where even David Bowie presented excerpts <laughs> from the book. Okay? And he, he, Bowie and other artists knew that this was all a hoax, but the public didn't. And That's hilarious. And so, like, so many artists, like, went on record saying, like, nice things about Nat Tate, and, like, they claimed to remember the artist, and, and then eventually it came out that this guy wasn't actually real at all and it was a controversy and people were like and people were upset and i'm like this is amazing why why would anyone be upset about this this is like the greatest hoax they thought they were playing checkers meanwhile they were playing 3d chess yeah and uh, the, the name comes from the two most prominent uh british art galleries the national gallery and the tate gallery so nat tate that's great and one last thing, uh, William Boyd also it, like did paintings himself, and he occasionally actually would make paintings and submit them to auctions under the name of Nat Tate, so he could raise funds for art charity. Oh well, that's good. I know, right? That that's a uh, that's that's what I found out about him. Um, yeah, tell me about you. Bring us home. Tell me about your second topic. All right, so. My next topic, as 
a lot of my topics do, started with an Eric. Really? Yeah, I know. I was not prepared for this. The first thing that I noticed when I went to the Eric page on Wikipedia to decide which Eric to go with uh, is that a new Eric was added to the page. Previously, when you would ask me to do Eric 13, it was uh, the page on Eric and Alaric. Yep. They now take up slot 14. So someone's been added in above them. I'm not sure who yet, though. So, earlier in this week when we were talking, you requested that I do Eric 57. Yes, Who turned out to be someone I'm actually familiar with. American singer-songwriter and country music artist, Eric Church. Okay. So... Right off the bat, it turns out that Eric is his middle name. He's actually Kenneth Eric Church is his, is his legal name. Oh. However, I think this still counts because I've already talked about an Eric who's an inanimate object and an <laughs> Eric who probably didn't exist. So, middle name Eric counts. <laughs> I guess Especially I... when it's his stage name. Yeah, okay. So, I'm a fan of country music and I quite like Eric Church's music as well. He's released six albums since 2006, Sinners Like Me in 2006, Carolina in 2009, Chief in 2011, The Outsiders in 2014, Mr. Misunderstood in 2015, and Desperate Man in 2018. He also has two more in the works, Heart and Soul, both due out this year. So now I'm going to go into his early life music career and personal life sections, but I'm not going to get into too much detail because I think it's a bit creepy to be that focused on somebody who's alive i I don't know why it feels different to me if they're dead well maybe just because it's like you're not in someone's personal life yeah i mean like once you die your personal life is already a while ago you know it's part of history then it's not like currently happening so he was born on may 3rd 1977 in north carolina that's my birthday 13 i knew you'd notice that he has he, he and i share a birthday really that's pretty cool yeah, May 3rd, 1977. I knew you'd done that. That's exactly 20 years before I was born. Wow. Well, technically you were born in the future, but we don't need to get into that. That's the day you were sent back to. You're right. So, by the age of 13, he had bought his first guitar with money he earned working for his dad's upholstery company, and he began to write songs. By his senior year of high school, he was working a gig as a musician at a local bar, and he graduated from the Appalachian state university with a degree in marketing (laughs) in his early breakout years he was fired from opening for rascal flats another country group because he kept going long on his time despite several warnings about not going over time on his opening he was replaced by taylor swift who was also up and coming at the time and before the switch eric and taylor spoke and he told her that she'd thrive on the tour and joked that she should give her first gold record to him as thanks for this opportunity. (laughs) She did end up giving her first gold record to him, with an attached note reading, quote, Thanks for playing too loud and too long on the Flats tour. I sincerely appreciate it. Taylor. (laughs) Wow. In January 2012, the song Drink In My Hand became his first ever number one single, and at the 2012 Country Music Association Awards, Chief won Album of the Year. His album, Mr. Misunderstood, was a surprise release with no marketing or fanfare in advance. CDs for it were sent out to his church choir anonymously, and then the next day it released to the iTunes store. And that's it. That sounds like poor marketing for a guy who studied marketing. Or. Or. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's bad. (laughs) It's intentionally bad. (laughs) 
He's like, no publicity is good publicity. He's like, I know marketing. I'll do it myself. And then he procrastinated it. And then on release date, he was like, oh, shit. Oh, I knew there was something I was forgetting about. (laughs) Mr. Misunderstood was also the first album that he used his guitar named Butterbean, which was named such by his three-year-old son. (laughs) Okay. Eric is also known for wearing a pair of signature aviator sunglasses while he performs because he wears contact lenses and the bright stage lights cause them to dry up. Fair enough. Now, I've never worn contact lenses and neither of you because you don't like things touching your eyes. So this question actually becomes irrelevant because I was going to ask you if you've ever had any experience with that. Well, I have had some experience with contact lenses. This is true. Um, I once, when I was in uh, grade 12, I think, I was like... I'm going to go talk to my optometrist about contact lenses. And so I did. And they were like, we'll order you some like test lenses. And uh, you can come for a, a contact lens fitting where you go and, you know, they put them in and see if you can see. So I went, they, like they ordered them. I waited a couple of weeks, went back, went to the optometrist and they were like, okay, so just like open your eye, hold it open, put the contact lens in blink to set it <laughs> i didn't get that far um i i got to the part where you're supposed to put the lens in so i have the contact lens on one finger and i'm holding my eye open and uh i have a as you mentioned just like five seconds ago i have a thing about things touching my eyes you know just really he can't st- even open his eyes underwater it's true i've got really strong blink reflexes which is really bad sometimes. But basically that appointment with the optometrist consisted of me poking myself in the eye for an hour and the contact lens never sticking to my eyeball. And then the optometrist just got frustrated with me and I left. And I was like, okay, I'll just go. (laughs) So Eric is also known for promoting cannabis use, which has become somewhat of a joke in the country music scene with the hosts of the 49th CMA Awards comparing his dressing room to a dispensary. Here's a question. CMA Awards. Country Music Association Awards. Okay, I was wondering if it was Country Music Awards and it was Country Music Awards Awards. I just... Nope. I even already said Country Music Association Awards out loud, and then I was abbreviating it because I'd already said it. Listen, Brian Wilford already said that People only refer, only remember 30% of the words that you tell them. Those were not part of them. I expected more of you, Derek. <laughs> okay, continue. So yeah, he's a, a known promoter of cannabis use, and apparently his dressing room is compared to a dispensary. <laughs> okay. And finally, throughout his career, he's been nominated for 80 different awards, of which he has won 12. Damn. So I think that's a pretty good record there. Yeah, pretty respectable. I mean, like, pretty pretty good, fifteen percent. So his page also mentioned that Eric lives in a Nashville home with his wife and kids, and that he has his own special man cave, which is where I'm headed to next. Okay. So a man cave, also known as a man space, man land, or mantuary. 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 <laughs> Okay. is a special retreat in a home, typically reserved for masculine decor and activities. And Wikipedia says that they typically come in the form of a specially equipped garage, spare bedroom, media room, den, basement, or treehouse. Personally, I could fuck with an adult treehouse. I think that's the best option on there. I was I thinking I was thinking that initially that man caves 
are just like a little overrated, you know, like I, I not like I just think they're like No, I like dumb, the idea of I a think man it's cave. I kinda think it's a dumb idea. But when you brought up the idea of the man cave treehouse, I was swayed. Initially I was doubting, now I'm convinced. Man man cave treehouse. I want one. Agreed. So the first recorded use of the term man cave comes from the March 21st, 1992 edition of the Toronto Star. Wow, okay. Yeah. Uh, The man cave is often a space to be alone or indulge in hobbies with the boys. It can loosely be considered a male-only space, and rules about cleanliness are generally relaxed. That's why I like my room to be a bit of a man cave. I don't want to stress out about my room. I sleep there. I play video games there. I want cool pictures on my wall, you know? Yes. And according to psychiatrist Scott Holtzman, it's important for a man to have a space to call his own and be able to retreat there. It's my safe space, Derek. For married men or men in similar relationships, it's often got the same vibe as a pad or frat house or dorm room from before they moved in with their significant other. So that might be why you think that the man cave is overrated. Currently, you just live with other dudes. But once you add people you're less comfortable with in that way into the mix, it's just nice to have a spot to retreat to. It's not that you don't appreciate everything else. It's that you want somewhere to be like, I don't need to be worried about anything while I'm here. This is my man cave. I can do my, my manly stuff. I don't need to worry that it's dusted more than I want it to be. All that kind of shit. Um, yeah, I get it. So generally, the idea of the man cave is to take traditionally manly spaces and then just ramp up the man level to 11. <laughs> so now I've got a question to end this off with for you. Okay. If you were to design your perfect man cave, what would the base of the room be, and how would you man it up to 11? Well, I already said treehouse, because, I mean, I thought that was easily the best thing on that uh, on that page, uh, like suggestion for what kind of room it could be. And, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like we could build a sick man cave treehouse together, uh, but... I don't know if I'd want to build my own, you know, like for me, it's it's for hanging out with the boys, isn't it? So I don't want to just have it be. Yeah, but you get to design it. Okay. Um, well, we have to have a mini fridge in there. Of course. Yeah, with all sorts of like Dijon ketchups and. Dijon ketchup. That's the that's the essentials of my man cave treehouse. So treehouse. You got to put a little mini fridge, fridge. up in there. Ketchup. That that's and all the fanciest Dijon ketchups. Okay, so that that's your that's your man cave. Yeah, I mean we we'll get the we'll get the other essentials in there too, but you know that's all right. That's so, the basis. Mine would start as a treehouse because that seems really fucking cool. Exactly. Preferably, right? it's on a lake shore or a river, and inside is done up like a hunting lodge. It has a high dive into the water, and the inside has a big TV for movies and video games. Then there's this big table for board games and D&D. A fridge keeps the drinks and food cold. And a big wood-burning fireplace does double duty for keeping the place warm and cooking my food. There's also probably a secret door somewhere in the construction. But I'm not going to say where it is or it's not a secret. That's my man cave. Okay. So a couple things. Mm Mm-hmm. One, 
Sound warning for headphone wearers. Sound warning for headphone wearers. <laughs> Two. It really reminds me of like, uh, remember what's the fucking video called? Uh, fake... Power thirst. Power thirst. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. You got it. It's an energy drink for men. Men energy. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for. The... Power okay. thirst comes in flavors. So many flavors. Like banana, fizz bitch, and gun. Chocolate. It's like chocolate. <laughs> you like strawberry? How, How about, about raw berry? <laughs> okay, yeah. I remember this video. I remember it. Uh, uh, it's so good. I'm going to watch it right after That's this. like 2006 YouTube. Oh, gosh. It is. It really is. The epitome of early YouTube. Um, my other question was going to be like, how are you going to power all that electricity in a treehouse? Sustainable solar lighting panels. It's in a tree. The tree blocks this light. I can wire them. I can put them in, in like a, a clearing somewhere nearby and then wire it to the Oh, smart, tree smart, house. smart. Okay, I'm glad you're using sustainable energy. I support that. Or you know what? If, it, if I do have it on a river instead of a lake, it could be hydroelectric. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, make sure it's situated near a waterfall. So you can capture the little, like, waterfall energy. Also because waterfalls are fucking dope! <laughs> All right, so that's where I ended off. That sounds pretty sick. Yeah, we can build our, our dream man cave treehouse together. <laughs> now I'm just imagining, you know, Barbie's dream home. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this is especially fitting because we... I already mentioned Mount Kilimanjaro in this episode, which is where, where our wedding will take we're, place. So Yes, if we're both single at 40. What a great episode. Let's name this motherfucker. No, Derek, we can't name it motherfucker. That's obscene. You're right. Spotify won't uh, allow that. Actually, they probably would. I don't know. Um, so my first idea that I took a note of while you were talking is episode seven. You could call him that. <laughs> what? You could call him? For Billy Boyd. You could call him that. <laughs> okay. Um, what about... Hmm... I always mean to take notes on what on possible episode names, and I even thought of one halfway through. Totally forgot what it was though. Um, hmm. Episode seven: Methamphetamines and man caves. Oh, I like that one. Methamphetamines and man caves. M and M's. Ah. I want to offer something, but I don't really... I, I lost my really good idea halfway through. Um, That's why you gotta take notes. I know, I always mean to. I just never do it. I'm kind of okay with methamphetamines and man caves. Alright, Unreliable Sources, Episode 7. Meth and... Methamphetamine oh, what if, and man caves. What if we caves. just call it meth and man caves? Sure, meth and man caves. Yeah, okay. Unreliable Sources, Episode 7. Meth and man caves. Done. <laughs> That's how you do an episode. <clears throat> I threw my fucking voice out with that manly man bit. Yeah, I can imagine. It was worth it! I'm gonna watch Power Thirst! Godberry, King of the Juice. Thanks for listening to Unreliable Sources. Eric and I hope you enjoyed it, and we would like to thank Wikipedia for everything we learned this episode. We are eternally grateful. Wikipedia is a nonprofit website and relies primarily on donations from people like us to continue sharing its knowledge for free. If you can, consider throwing a small donation their way. And until next time, never stop learning. App is a seven.
Are you stopping your recording, did you say?